How's everybody doing this morning? Can we just give a thank you for what the Lord's doing? Uh, just a point of celebration. You may have noticed we've got a, a few more chairs out. We got over 400 last service, which is pretty awesome to see how God is moving. If you're new with us, my name is Jay. Yeah, we can thank the Lord for that. That's awesome. Um, here's the thing. The reason why I share that is numbers aren't everything, but numbers are something, right? They share about what God is doing and how God is moving. And, and uh, particularly the last couple weeks, man, God has just been doing some really cool stuff at Zion. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. And if you're looking for a church home, if you're visiting, uh, or even if you're just checking out this church stuff, we're so glad you're here. Uh, as Megan said, we're heading into the park, so check out this video, and then I'm going to share a, a prayer request with you guys. Zion at the Park is back. Well, almost. For over 25 years, Zion as a church has been blessed with the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in City Park, located directly in the heart Lake. We love this time of year and seeing all the ways that God moves through it. As our church moves out into the park, we are tasked with the fantastic responsibility of being hospitable not only to our city, but several North Iowa communities as well. This provides us with the opportunity to show the love of Christ to believers and non-believers alike. So think of it like this. This is when we bring out our A-game. This isn't a time to kick back our feet and enjoy the breeze, but a time to truly fulfill the great command of loving our neighbors. This is a call to action, a call to stand firm in faith and bring our joy to the Lord into our city. See you in the park every Sunday at 10 a.m. from Memorial Day to Labor Day. We hope to see you there. Uh, last week, I, I invited you guys to a time of prayer because here's the thing. Um, the park is an amazing place. We have such incredible opportunities there. I know several of you got connected to Zion because of Church in the Park. And, and here's the part. We talked about this last week is that there is spiritual warfare. And I, I want you to hear this. We believe in a literal enemy called Satan and the devil and his demons. And we believe that he wants to do everything he can to get in the way of what God is doing. And I want you to hear this. Satan hates you. He hates God's creation. He hates God's people but he really, really wants to do everything he can to discourage, dissuade, and distract not only God's people, but those who need to hear the gospel. And so we need your prayers. We need you to be praying for the Holy Spirit to move in the lives, hearts, and minds of people who are hearing the gospel for the first time. And, and here's the best part. The Bible tells us that we get to do that because we have the Holy Spirit in us, and because of Jesus' name, we have authority. Everybody say authority. Authority is what gives us the right to come and wage spiritual warfare because we're not the ones fighting the battle. Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is. And, and so what we do, God calls us to pray in authority and trusting that the Lord will work. Now, here's another side to this as well, is we're praying for those who are coming into the park for the first time who need to hear Jesus. They need to hear about the love of God. They need to hear about a God who cares about them, but more importantly, wants to set them free. Free from sin and death, from addiction, from all the lies that they believed and lived in. And so that's the first invitation. Uh, the second part is this, and it's actually a challenge for us. And I'm going to share something that I'll, I'll just be real with you guys. Uh, I don't think I've ever said it from here, from this platform before. But the park brings a, a, a challenge with both an opportunity and an obstacle. And I want you guys to be aware of it because it actually does affect us. See, what happens is this, is every time we go into the park, as cool as it is, we lose some momentum as a church. It sounds weird because we actually grow in numbers, but engagement in the church becomes less. 
And part of that is just the summer, right? I mean, let's be honest. I'll be times, there are times where I'm like, dude, I could either be out on the lake or be preaching. There are times I'd much rather be out on the lake than preaching. And, and so we know that. But here are the three obstacles, but they're also opportunities. And so I, I want to share these so one, you can be praying about them, but also I want to give a solution to them. So the first obstacle is we have no video, uh, which means that during our time of singing and worship to the Lord, we've tried the Facebook app or the app on our phone. We've tried handing out things, but immediately it gets difficult to sing when you don't know the lyrics. And we've trained an entire generation to look up at a screen so it's funny is I'll, we'll hand people a phone and say, hey, we got it here, but you've not been taught to do worship this way. You've been taught to look forward. Um, while we've tried different solutions, I don't think any of them have worked great. Uh, ultimately, I'd love to be able to invest in getting an LED screen for the band shell out there. That would be incredible. Uh, and eventually we want to do an LED screen here. That's intentional plug. I'm just kind of painting forward the vision of some things that God is doing. But here's a way that we can solve or help that problem. Uh, we're going to start putting out at the beginning of the week during Church in the Park what the songs are going to be. Here's what you can do. You can listen to those songs. Get to know them throughout the week. Worship, put them in your private worship time so that when we come and worship on Sunday morning, we're familiar with the songs that we're going to be singing because God really does. He delights in the praise of His people. He inhabits the praise of His people according to Scripture. That's the first obstacle. Second obstacle is visitors and volunteers. We have an amazing group of volunteers who do hospitality and the difficulty in the park is, is because it's so big, you're always going to miss people. We're always going to miss opportunities. So here's what I'm asking, particularly for those of you who call Zion your home, your family. Be hospitable. Uh, don't just rely on the hospitality team to say hello. Meet the people next to you. You have no idea how God, how the Holy Spirit might use a smile that morning to reveal Jesus to somebody in need. It's those small things that matter, those small little gestures, the, hey, great to meet you, introduce yourself. If you see somebody sitting by themselves, invite them to sit with you. Let's be the community of faith. And then the last one is something I alluded to earlier, and that is that when it comes to summer, and I'll tell you for our, our volunteers, we have our children's ministry and student ministries team, they pour a lot. And matter of fact, can we just give a thank you to all those who serve our kids? And they don't do it for the applause. They really don't. They do it because they love kids, because they want to see kids connect with Jesus. But by the time summer comes, a lot of people have already been doing life a lot. And so it's easy when summer comes to move into relaxation mode. And while you'll go to church, what happens often in the church community is that you go to church and that's it. And we lose disengagement. And so here's the challenge I'm going to give us. And we just talked about it last week. Get plugged in to church during the summer. And here's what I mean by that. Maybe it's a small group. If you're in a small group, do a barbecue, hang out after church, grab lunch. It's those small things. They don't have to be necessarily about getting involved in ministry. It's more about being a person in faith. So that way, when we come into the fall, we're not trying to pick up speed because speed was lost. Does that make sense? Because that's what happens. Every fall we come in and it feels like we're starting over again, trying to build momentum because during the summer we lose that. We have an incredible opportunity because most churches during the summer decrease in attendance. We're, we grow. Last year, I think our average attendance over the summer was seven to 800. We had a couple thousand Sundays. I mean, that's remarkable. Um, and I, I'm especially looking at what God has been doing here just in the last few months. And I have no idea what the park's gonna be. But it's our opportunity to not only just step in and be community, but also be faithful for the opportunities God has given us. Amen? All right, so here's the question I have with you this morning. 
who here is ready to lean into what God has for you this morning? If you're ready, say amen. And, and here's how we do that. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to have you stand, and it's a prayer of readiness, a prayer of invitation. So if you'd like to, would you please join me in prayer and stand, and then we'll read our text. Would you join me? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for how good and how faithful you have been to me this week. Thank you for your word and the gift and presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for my church family. This morning, I want all that you have for me and for my life. I also pray your blessing and favor on the person next to me. Soften my heart to your spirit this morning. In Jesus' good and loving name, amen. And now would you join me? Now this morning we're doing text, the, the scripture a little bit different. It's actually three different verses, but it's creating a theme for what we're talking about this morning. Would you join me in reading our text? We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Next verse. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Next verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. Um, Several months ago, I shared with you as a church, um, and and I want to be clear, I cannot prove this. I I can only talk about how it affected my life. Um, But I I had two instances where I believe I audibly heard the voice of the Lord. I don't mean a still small voice in my heart. I don't mean my conscience. There was no Jiminy Cricket. It was like, I'm talking to you now. And I shared one of those a few months ago with you as my church family. And and I want to share the second time that this happened, but I want to kind of set up. Both of these happened in my late teens and early 20s. And they were in times where I was really struggling. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with my identity in Christ. Uh, a sense of that I was failing God. How many of you ever struggle to feel like you're failing God? It was, it was weighing me down very heavily. And one of the things that I have a spiritual barometer, and I'm just going to be very real with you guys, okay? Because I'm as human as the rest of you. We're all, we all share in this journey together of humanity. I have a barometer that kind of is my way of knowing where my soul's at. And there are two things that are kind of a good indicator that my soul is not in a good place. The first is my language. My language can get a little salty. Anybody else have that? Where you? Okay, yes, I, I cuss every once in a while. It happens, okay? But the second is sarcasm. Uh, when my soul's not in a good place, I get sarcastic. Now, it's interesting because sarcasm actually comes from the Greek word sarx, which means flesh. And the idea of sarcasm means this. It means to devour flesh. Or a better illustration, the Greeks saw it, the imagery of sarcasm was like a dog eating the flesh from from a, a dead body. That's kind of gross, isn't it? And that's what sarcasm is when it comes from a spiritual. Now, there's sarcasm used as a literary device, totally different. But when sarcasm hits the soul, it's a devouring. It's, it's a way of inflicting pain on somebody else at their expense while trying to get a laugh at the same time. And sarcasm is one of the things that when I'm struggling, I deal with. When my soul is not in a good place, Jason Miller gets sarcastic. Well, Growing up in San Diego, my favorite beach to, to go to is a place called La Jolla Shores. Anybody ever been to La Jolla Shores? 
absolutely stunning beach. And often what I would do is when I was struggling, I would drive down to the beach at 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night, and I would go walk the beach. Now, what you're seeing here is not, it's not a trick. That's actually a blue glow coming from the ocean. Now, in San Diego, there's these things called phytoplankton. Don't ask me what they are. I don't know. They're just, they exist in the water. But in San Diego, at certain times of the year, when phyto, these phytoplankton are in there, when the waves crash, it creates bioluminescence, which means glowing from internal, creating this blue effect in the ocean. I mean, it's bright. In fact, when the phytoplankton is up on the beach, if you walk on the water, you can actually see a trail of blue with your footsteps in some places. And I would often go late at night to go just kind of spend time alone, sometimes to talk with the Lord, sometimes to deal with stuff. Now, remember, this is, I've shared one other time where the Lord spoke to me, so I knew the voice that was going to come. And as I was walking that late night, struggling with depression, I heard that familiar voice, Jason. And I knew immediately who it was, but this time, instead of a sense of overwhelming peace or calm, this is how I responded, what And God said, Jason, I want you to look out into the ocean and tell me what you see. And this is my response to the almighty God of the universe. Nothing. It's dark. And here's the thing. God didn't respond in kind. He he wasn't angry. He said, Jason, no, look again. Tell me what you see. And I said, I see waves. So what? And he goes, Jason, do you realize since the beginning of time when I set the motions into place, every time a wave passes over the beach, it's never the same beach whether because a grain of sand has moved or an entire cliff gives way, that beach is never the same. Now, how many of you have ever stood in an ocean when you feel the waves going over and you feel yourself sinking into the sound? That's the beach being transformed. And and all of a sudden, I said, okay, so so what am I supposed to do with this? And I, I was overwhelmed with sadness. And I turned to the Lord and I said, but what about all the trash on my beach, Lord? And I began to weep bitterly. Now, again, I'm talking out loud. I'm talking to God. God's talking to me. And listen, this is what the Lord said to me in, in kindness and love. God said to me, Jason, don't worry about the trash. Worry about the wave. Now, here's what I mean by that. And this is not what the Lord was saying. The Lord was not saying just ignore the garbage. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying dismiss the garbage. What it was was an invitation for me to focus on where transformation really happens within the Holy Spirit. That wave passed over my life, and I can literally point back to the night was the beginning of my understanding of the gospel changing. My understanding of who I was in Christ. And it's been a journey for 20 plus years. It didn't just happen that night. All of a sudden it wasn't, I had this revelation from the Lord and oh, I'm changed person. No, I've struggled for 20, almost 30 years to let that wave pass over my life. And I can look back on that night and I can see what God has done and continued to do. But here's the thing. I often worry way too much about the trash and not enough about the Holy Spirit and the God who moves in it. We've been going through Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, a 40-day journey, exploring what I believe to be one of the most important questions that humans can ask, and that is, what am I here for? And I'm grateful for the work that he's done, but there's a few things that we've discovered, and I want you to hear this, okay? Whether or not you're a Christian, I'm not going to assume every person in here believes in Jesus. Most of you do, I get that, but maybe you're here and you're like, I'm not sure where I stand with all this faith stuff. Here's what I want you to hear. God's primary purpose for all human beings, because human beings are made in the image of God, even the ones you don't like are made in the image of God, 
Republican, Democrat, all made in the image of God. Atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Baptist, all made in the image of God. All human beings are made in the image of God, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, whether they act horrible or act nice, whether they do good things or bad things, all human beings are made in the image of God. But what does that mean? It means that all human beings are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. That does not mean that they always act honorable, respectful, or lovingly. But all human beings are made in the image of God. And as the Westminster Catechism tells us, and it's wonderfully put, the chief end of man is to know and love God, to make him known and enjoy him forever. All human beings were created to have a relationship with God, to know God and enjoy God. The problem is we don't. And we've used over the last several weeks this ladder illustration. I'm not bringing the ladder out today, but God is supposed to be at the top of our ladder. He is supposed to be the chief end of which we exist, but we don't do that. And he's worthy of that because we'll simply put, he's God. Because he's God and you are not, God is worthy to be at the top of everything. He is worthy of being known and love and to enjoy. And because he's God and because you were created by him as God, you were not just created for him, but also for his pleasure. And what the Bible tells us is that whenever you bring pleasure to God, that's called worship. And worship, you were, there is a biological imperative within all human beings to worship something because God put it there. Now, you can either worship God or you can worship something else. And the problem is, is that when we don't worship God, that doesn't bring pleasure to God, but we we tend to naturally worship the wrong things. Why? Well, as John Calvin, who was a theologian, once said these words, the human heart is an idol factory. It means that because you were created to worship, you will naturally find something to fill that void, whether it be yourself, your job, your children, an activity, a sin, whatever it will be, you will find something to worship. And Jesus tells us, God tells us that we were created to worship God. God. And when we do that, we bring pleasure to God. Now, here's the best part. What brings the greatest joy and pleasure is when you live out your purpose for your life. That actually brings ultimate pleasure to God. When you do what God created you to do. And now you may not realize this. This is an incredibly great news for your life. You ready? Because this means you can worship God in just about any way as long as it's not sinful. Think about this. You can worship God if you're out on the golf course and you hit that perfect swing. You know that feeling where you just, you feel like Tiger Woods, like you just, oh, I don't know how I did that, but that felt awesome. But if God is the object of your affection, that brings delight to God when that moment happens. You can worship God through your job. As long as the job is not sinful, God can be delighted in through your job. But here's what most people do. We mistake our purpose for our calling. There are things that God has called you to. Your job is not your purpose. Your hobby is not your purpose. Your children are not your purpose in life. They are callings that God invited you to. But here's the bigger problem. Sometimes God's not the one who gave you the calling something else is. But if you understand that God, anything, anytime, that you as a believer, as a Christian, anytime that you Make God the object of your affection. Anything you do can be an act of worship. So you don't, it's not about being Sunday morning. It's not about us singing a song. Yes, those can be worshipful. But worship is available anywhere. You can put God as supreme focus. Now, this leads us to today's purpose or, or, or last week's purpose. Just as you were created to worship, you were, God also created you to be a part of God's family. 
and that you were meant to be a part of a spiritual family formed by God while all human beings are born from natural family, meaning you all have flesh and blood, you all have human DNA in you, through Jesus, God is forming a spiritual family or a forever family, a family not connected by DNA, but by the blood of Jesus. You were created to be a part of that family. And here's what I want you to hear, because it is a lie that has perpetrated the church. I meet more people who say they're Christian who say these words, well, I don't have to go to church to love Jesus. First of all, that's not true. You actually need to be a part of a church to love Jesus. You don't have to go to church to be saved. But in order to love Jesus the way he wants you to, you're called to obey his commands. Well, what is one of the things God tells us to do? To be a part of a church family. Now, the lie comes into this is people mistake that church can be anything or anywhere they want it to be. No, church is meant to be a spiritual family, a community of faith that you are part of through Jesus. And it's supposed to be your local church. Now, we have people who travel, and I love the fact that they come here. But guess what? They have a church in the hometown where they're from. I've talked to some of you this morning. And, and so it's not about that you always have to be at your church, but if you're in community, if that's where you live, find a church home, be in spiritual family. And here's why. You need the church, the body of Christ, and the church needs you. And here's the harder part, which some people do not want to admit. You will not be a healthy follower of Jesus without a local church family. God primarily works through the church family. You were created for that church family. And I'm going to quote, Rick Warren actually has some very thoughtful things to say about this. So this first part is from me, and then I want to use a quote from Rick Warren. This is Jason. One of the things that I believe saddens the Father, that breaks Jesus' heart and grieves the Holy Spirit is the fact, and here's what Rick Warren says, too many Christians use the church but don't love the church. You know how many Christians I know who they just consume to church? All they do is they come and they take and they take and they take, and instead of being a part of the church community, or I'll often hear this, well, I, I love Jesus but I don't like his church. That's the equivalent of somebody saying, Jason, I like you but I don't like your wife. Yeah, that doesn't fly. I had somebody once say to me, Jason, I think you're awesome. I really like you, but I can't stand your wife, so I'd like to be your friend. And I went, survey says, nah, nope, that doesn't happen. No, you, you can't say you love me and you hate my wife. And so as believers, we are called to be a part of a local church family, not to consume, but to contribute, to be part of the family of God, which then leads us to today's purpose. Today's purpose, we're going to talk about that you were created to become like Jesus. And that's, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a scary thought, right? A little overwhelming. Now let's be clear what it does not say. It does not say you were created to become Jesus. You are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. Jesus is God become flesh. He was without sin. He was perfect. Anybody here fit that bill? Anybody without sin or perfect? No, we are not created to be Jesus, but we are created to be like Jesus. The Apostle Paul said this in the book of Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to understand who God is, Look to Jesus. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, it can be a little confusing, can't it? Because the God of the Old Testament doesn't really look like Jesus. 
which is why we always have to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the fullness of God, which means the Old Testament was not the fullness of God revealed yet. It's an anticipation to help us understand our job is to look to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. The reason why I was struggling on the beach that night, why I was overwhelmed, is because it's kind of a lot to even think that I'm supposed to become like Jesus. It's overwhelming to think that somehow I'm supposed to be like Jesus. Because on my best days, my absolute best ways, I'm still nowhere close to being like Jesus. Even in the moments, because I can do all the right things, but internally I can have lots of bad things. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever done something on the outside while the inside's all messed up? You do the right thing on the outside, but internally you're angry, you're bitter, you're doing it for selfish reasons. The Bible tells us that's the human condition. Jesus dealt with that. Just because you clean the outside of the cup, it's the inside of the cup that matters. And too often what we do is we focus so much on the outside and we never deal with the inside. And so what does it mean to become like Jesus? See, if you are a Christian, one of God's purposes for your life is that you become like Jesus. But in order to understand what this purpose means, it's helpful to know what it does and does not mean. Because what we do is we add things on top of that. So we make it say something that God never intended. So let's talk about the first one. You were created to be like Jesus, not to be Jesus. Jesus is God. I am not God. You are not God. Jesus is sinless. I am not sinless. You are not sinless. Jesus is perfect. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. You might recall a few weeks ago when I said these words, God is not just worthy of your worship, but he's also worth your worship. And what we talked about is that God is not just loving, he is love. God is not just merciful, he is mercy. God does not just do just, he's not just just, he is justice. God is the embodiment of all perfect things. He is all things loving. And we know this because 1 John tells us that God is love. As if you want to know what love looks like, look to Jesus. Now here's the thing, you and I will never be the embodiment of love. You can be loving though. I will never be the embodiment of mercy, but I can be merciful. All of the things that God has called us to do, and, and listen to this, being like Jesus simply means you reflect, albeit imperfectly, you reflect the life and character of Jesus that you love and serve. That reflection is important, which brings us to the second thing you need to know about this purpose. You also were not created to do it alone. You were not created to become like Jesus by yourself. First, God gave us his word. He gave you the Bible to help you understand. Some people want the Bible to be a blueprint. It's a really confusing blueprint if that's the case. It's not a blueprint, but it is a beautiful picture. It's a picture of who God is and humanity is and what it means to truly be human because the reason why nasty things happen in the world is because humans don't act like the God who created them. That's why gross things happen. Second, he gave you his church. We talked about this last week. God gave you the church to help you become like Jesus. Now, this is the most important one because if you have the Bible and you have the church, but you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're still doing it in your own power. God gave you the Holy Spirit to do the work of becoming like Jesus. It's a word called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. 
That is God doing the work in you. Now listen to this point. Becoming like Jesus is actually something done to you, done in you, and done for you and for those around you, but it is not done by you. Did you catch that? Let me say that one more time. Becoming like Jesus is actually something done to you, in you, for you, and for those around you, but it is not done by you. You cannot become like Jesus through your own power and strength. In fact, it is impossible to become like Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And sadly, too many pastors and preachers, too many books, too many podcasts, too many Christians make becoming like Jesus something you work for. Now you might go, but Jason, doesn't Paul tell us in Ephesians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? The key word is work out, not work for. You are supposed to work. We are supposed to strive. But you know what we're fighting for? We're not fighting to change our behavior. We're fighting to change our identity. We're fighting to stay in Jesus. We're fighting to rely on the Holy Spirit. Too many of you are too busy trying to be like Jesus through your power and your strength, and it's exhausting. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have a part in the process, but that part is not about you striving for perfection. It's about you learning to trust, lean, and depend on the God who moves in you. When I look at my life, when I looked at my life in comparison to Jesus that night, my faith, because I'd been trying to do it in my strength, in my holiness, my morality, my faith felt more like a burden than it did a blessing. Because it was about something I was trying to earn. And I'd love to say that that night fixed everything. It didn't. But that night was truly, I can point to that night as the beginning of God beginning to show me the good news of the gospel of finding my identity in Jesus. So what does it mean to say that you are to become like Christ? Well, I want to look at our verses for this morning, okay? So let's check out Romans chapter 5. We read this out loud. We also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. Now, you might be caught off a little, caught off guard by that word. Wait, suffering? Did Paul really mean to say suffering? I'm sure he felt he meant to say something else because anybody here, anybody here look for suffering? Most of us avoid suffering. As a matter of fact, that's kind of the American dream is to get a lot of great things with suffering at minimal cost. And yet here, the Apostle Paul says that God uses suffering. Now, we might struggle with that. In fact, I wouldn't blame you if you struggle with this because it's easy to assume, wait, I thought God was loving, kind, and compassionate. Those don't feel like very loving, kind, and compassionate. doesn't seem like a, something a God would do if, that He'd allow suffering. How does a loving God allow suffering? How would a, a kind God let me suffer? Why would God, as a compassionate God, why would He let me suffer? But here we see that God is very clear that suffering, God does something through it. And I would argue this. The Bible is stating a truth that you already know. Anything worth becoming like requires some level of suffering. Let me give you an example, and you're all going to know it immediately. Why do you go to the gym? Why do you exercise? When, if you're trying to lose weight, why do you deny yourself the Sunday? Not the Sunday, Sunday morning, but the ice cream delicious goodness. <laughs> Why do, you, why do you do these things? You know, because in order to get healthy, you have to what? Suffer. 
There's no magic pill. Yeah, you can take a shot for right now to lose some weight, but that really doesn't fix the problem, does it? Because you're going to be dependent upon that shot. Suffering simply means undergoing pain, hardship, or distress. Now, as silly as it sounds, you know the primary reason why people end up failing at their diets? As silly as it seems, it's because the suffering wasn't worth it. It was worth it for a little bit, but it was either too hard or not worth the cost. And here, the Bible tells us that God uses suffering. Now, you might choose to lose, you might choose to suffer so you can lose weight or so you can get the body you've always wanted. We all know that anything that really has value in your life, you're willing to suffer for it. That's how we know it's worth it, because it's worth suffering. But let's even talk about those who are already fit, those who don't need to lose weight, those who are, maybe they've already got the body they dream of. Does that body just stay that way, or do you have to keep on working out to keep that body? That's the crazy part. Now, I'm going to get all sciency on you here. Um, there's a reason why you have to have this. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. That's right. I use science because science is a reflection of the world around us. Second law of thermodynamics says this. Basically, everything is always moving towards chaos. Or entropy is the word. When I tell my children to clean their room, they're going to be like, oh, I'm suffering. I don't want to clean my room, right? No one likes to clean your room. Why do you clean your room? Because if you don't, does it get clean on its own? No, you have to suffer a little bit. In fact, some suffering produces something worthwhile. Second law of thermodynamics simply tells us this. Things naturally move towards uh, entropy or chaos or disorder. In other words, clean rooms become messy. Warm things get cold. Healthy things get unhealthy. Now, check this out from a suffering perspective uh, one of our staff members, Jaden, showed me this. See, here's what happens. What happens when you delay suffering to take care of something in the moment? Does it get better as it go along? No, it gets exponentially worse if you don't deal with it. And so here's the thing. What if God, in His wisdom, understands that maybe He puts you in positions to suffer a little bit now so that you don't suffer later? What if God, in His wisdom, knows that in order to become the person, the follower of Jesus that he wants you to be, he puts you in that moment to suffer now so that you don't, if you delay suffering, it's going to get way worse later. But that's hard to comprehend, isn't it? Because what we want is we want the, we want the straight line with no suffering. That is not how the world works. That's just not how life works. So you can either suffer now, and yes, it's not going to be fun, it's not going to be painful, or you can risk exponentially more suffering later. What if God realizes? What if God in His wisdom knows that the reason why He puts us in places to suffer is to produce something good now for future use? This is why when Paul says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. God uses suffering in your life to produce spiritual maturity and to develop faith muscles. It's just how the world works. And why is it that we're okay with this in any other thing except spirituality? We get it. No one's shocked when you go to the gym and the trainer says, hey, if you want to gain muscle, you've got to lift weights. You gotta, no one's like, oh, that feels wrong. No, you know that's true. But when it comes to faith, we struggle with this going, God, why are you letting me suffer? Now, here's the other part. 
Because we believe in spiritual warfare, it's important to understand the difference between suffering that produces something good and suffering that produces evil and unjustness or death. Satan wants you to suffer to discourage and ultimately destroy you. His suffering does not produce anything holy or good. God allows suffering for a purpose to help you become more like Jesus. Now, you might ask, well, how does suffering help me become more like Jesus? Listen to Hebrews. Son, he's referring to Jesus, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was fully human and fully God, and because he was both, In order to be fully human, he had to learn obedience. He could not just be obedient. And so God placed him in situations. He put him under earthly parents. And so every time his parents said, hey, Jesus, clean your room, he didn't go, okay. No, he did it. He just, my mom and dad said, clean your room, clean his room. When God said, Jesus, do this, he didn't question. He just did it. Each time he did that, he suffered to learn obedience, therefore becoming mature. And the ultimate act of obedience was the greatest suffering of all, the cross. God called him to go to the cross on Jesus joyfully went. For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. The difference between Jesus and you and me is that we tend to be very hard-headed. We have learning difficulties when it comes to obedience, which is why we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. Jesus, and this this is so cool, even though he was perfect, because he was God, but because he was human, he also earned the perfect score every time he was tested. So you don't earn salvation. Jesus earned a perfect score. Every time he was tested, he passed. Every time he was called to be obedient, he learned the lesson and moved on. He got 100%. Anybody here get 100% in life when it comes to learning? No. And so Jesus becomes our hope. Our problem is that we don't get 100s when it comes to obedience, especially when it comes to suffering, which is why this next verse is so important. And we know that in all things, the all things that Paul is referring to in Romans are all the sufferings. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now I want to stop here for a second. It breaks my heart and it breaks God's heart when Christians and non-Christians take a text that is meant for God's people and apply it to everybody. Here's why this matters. God works together all things for the good of those who love Him. In other words, if you don't love God, all the suffering in your life is not being worked for good. It's not. I know that may not sound nice, but it's true. And you might be like, but Jason, I don't know Jesus and my life is going really well for right now. But what about when you have to stand before the Lord and you find ultimate suffering? That's what hell is. Hell is getting a world in which you are God and he is not. And that comes with ultimate suffering because humans are really good at messing things up. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of son, that he might be the firstborn over all. This leads to the problem of evil. See, one of the biggest obstacles that people have, Christians and non-Christians, comes down to the question of suffering. It's called theodicy. And here's what it is, the problem of evil or suffering. How could an all-powerful and an all-loving God allow suffering in the world? How many of you have ever wondered that question? How could God, all-loving, all-powerful, allow suffering? Now, here's the thing. Either, and this is, this is what the philosophical argument is, either God is all-powerful, He's powerful enough to stop evil and suffering, but not loving enough to do it. That's the first challenge. 
The second is, yes, maybe God's all loving, but maybe he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Now, these seem like fair questions. However, there's one problem with this. See, God is more than just love and power. He's just, he's merciful, but he's also wise. And when you add God's wisdom into this question, it changes things. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is all-loving. But God is also all-wise, which means God in all His love allows suffering. Why? Because it is not love to force people to love you. In fact, we have a word for that. When somebody forces you to love them, it's called rape. God does not force people to love Him. He gives you a choice. If he didn't give you a choice, it would not be love. Yes, God is all-powerful, but if God used that power to force you to love him, that is not loving and that is an abuse of power. And how do I know that? Because God is all-wise. He knows exactly how to utilize his power and love in such a way that gives you a choice and still gives him room to be powerful because he's all-wise. And as hard as it is to accept this, when you begin to understand that God wisely and lovingly will use his power to work all things for good for those who love him, it changes everything. Because now suffering can have a point. What happens when Christians use this verse and they throw it out to non-Christians who are suffering? We're giving them false hope. It is not loving to tell somebody who does not know Jesus that their suffering is good and that God will work through it. No, God works together for those who love him, which means if you are not loving God and you're experiencing suffering, you don't get to hold on to the promise of that verse. That is a verse designed for God's people to remind them that God is faithful. So what does it exactly mean that God works all things together for good? Well, this leads us to our last verse. Okay, for those people who offered to come and help me with my volunteer, my, my illustration, can I get my people to come up here, please? All the ones, come here. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you an example of how suffering produces something. And for those who can, and I might need a few extras. Yeah, come here. I need all I can. Okay. Each of you grab a chair. Uh, can I get a, anybody else? I need a couple more volunteers. Just a couple more. You're not, I'm not going to ask you to talk. I just need you to do something. Can I get a couple? No one. Wow, y'all are shy. Here, then do this. Only three of you take a chair. Two of you put that down. They're hanging out, hanging out right here. Okay, so check this out. How many of you guys have ever heard the chair game? You guys ever seen this game? Thank you. This right here. Dude, give me some fire. Okay, the chair. No, stay up here. I still need you. I still need you. You're not, no, you're not, I'm not done with you yet. Get up here. All right. So here's the chair game. How many of you have ever seen this where you do the chair game? Everybody hold the chair out uh, up in front of you. Hold it out and straighten your arms. Okay, now this is what happens for most of us. We're suffering, we're suffering needlessly. How long do you think they can keep on doing this on their own? A minute? Well, I mean, if it's between Mark and Brett, no, straighten those arms, you're cheating. There you go. See, now they might be able to do it for a couple minutes, but now we start adding on the pressures of life. There you go, buddy. <laughs> and hold on, you, you, I mean, you look like you could handle a little. No, you don't get to drop it, man. That's cheating. Here we go, hold that, hold that, hold that. There we go, there we go. How you doing? Okay, now, you're wondering what they're doing up here. You ever wonder why God put you in community? See, here's the thing. They can't do this on their own, can they? What they need to do is ask for help. Now, the reason why you have a church family here, go help one of them. Choose somebody to help. This is church family. It's carrying one another bird. Go ahead. Find somebody to help. No, you guys stay right here. Your church family. Now, can they do this for a little bit longer? Now, this is suffering, and it's meant to produce something. It's showing something. But here's the problem. If they're doing all that, how are you hanging on there? You doing okay? Now, here's the thing. You have a church community to help you so that when you're tired... 
you can actually hand it. So if you're tired, okay, Brett, if you're tired, I know Mark's not tired yet. If you're tired, you can let go and say, hey, I need somebody to carry my burdens. But see, you also have the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. You have access to the Holy Spirit, but in order to receive the help, what do you need to ask for? Help. If you need help, say, I need help. Holy Spirit, come here. Help him. Help him. So you have to ask, what if the reason, stay up here for a second, what if the reason why God allows you to suffer is to teach you dependence? Because too many of you are trying to do this on your own. You're trying to make this work all by yourself when you're white-knuckling, trying to be moral, trying to do good things. And yes, you have a church community, but here's the problem. See, too many of us, we're like, no, no, give it to me, give it to me, I want it back. Instead of trusting and leaning into community, leaning on the Holy Spirit, we try to do it. You guys can put it down. Thank you. Can we give it up for them? See, here's the problem. You can only do that for so long before you're going to fall. Some of you have been trying in your own strength, in your own power to become like Jesus, and you're failing miserably like that. (laughs) Now, here's the funniest part. These were all religious books. And you know what I think is the biggest burden to most Christians? Religion. Not relationship with Jesus. It's all the morality that we put on from church. It's the you have to be this, act like this, do this. And what the point of this is, is that no, you were not created to white knuckle it. You were created to not suffer alone. You need church family so that when hard times come, you can lean on your brother and sister in Christ. But that means you have to be vulnerable enough to share it. You have to be able to say, I'm struggling right now, which brings us to the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we're coming to an end here. See, listen, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the fruit the worship team can come up. There we go. There we go. I'm going to say that one more time. Thank you. Brett, just come on up, Bert. That's an inside joke. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Jason Miller, not the fruit of Zion, not the fruit of your religious work. It's called the fruit of the Spirit because it's learned through dependency on Jesus. And listen to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The only way that you can learn to be loving... To depend on Jesus is you have to be put in an opportunity where you don't have to be loving. The only way that you can learn patience is you have to be given the choice to be impatient. The only way that you can learn joy is God places you in positions where you can have bitterness and envy, but this is why you need the Holy Spirit and you need community because when that temptation comes, we've heard this verse twisted all the time, When people say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. God regularly allows you more than you can handle because you were not supposed to handle it alone. In fact, here's what the verse says to us. It actually tells us that the opposite is that God instead, oh, I can't find the verse. Okay, here's the verse. It's all just read it out. Basically, what he says is this, is that God has not left you alone and that when you are faced with a temptation, He will always give you a way out of that temptation. And it comes first through the Spirit, which means you have to be living life in the Spirit. You have to know the Spirit. You have to love the Spirit. You have to build relationship with the Spirit. Because when that temptation comes, and it will, you will only be able to white knuckle for so long. I want to go back to that beach illustration when I was out with walking on the beach and the the imagery that the Lord showed me. See, here's what... I didn't, for years, I didn't understand why the wave, what was going on there. And this week, I finally think I got some clarity. The phytoplankton that created that beautiful blue light 
all of that beauty was available, but it was only accessed when there was some stress on the phytoplankton. There had to be some tumbling. It had to be, there had to be pressure only when it was messed up, only when it was, when it was being put through the wave, when it was put through the hard stuff, that's when the beauty showed up. Too many of you want all of the beauty of following Jesus, but none of the stress to get there. And I'm here to tell you that God wants to work in you through that. And the way he's going to do it is going to put you in places to experience that. Um, Rick Warren used a phrase that I've heard for years from other pastors. You know, usually where you're going to experience the, the hardest people to be around, it's in the church. He called them extra grace required people, EGR. And, there, and some of you are like, well, why? Well, because the church is a hospital. It's not a sandals. It's filled with broken people, and broken people are messy. They're going to test your patience. They're going to be hard to love at time. And I heard it once. I said this. I heard it said this one time: is that if you don't have any extra grace required people in your life, you're probably the extra grace required person in somebody else's. God is placing you in those positions because He loves you, because He's trying to produce something in you. Because you cannot be like the Jesus who suffered for you without suffering. But the difference is this, and I want to be clear, okay? There is good suffering that is helpful, that is fruitful, that God uses. And then there is needless and abusive suffering that God does not call you to stay in. Boundaries are good. Jesus had boundaries. God had boundaries. So I meet, some, I meet a lot of Christians who will put themselves in job positions where they're facing abuse. And well, maybe God's trying to teach me something. Yeah, he's trying to teach you boundaries. Set up boundaries. Boundaries are okay. But do not avoid suffering. Because suffering that God has placed in your life that is not rooted in abuse can lead you somewhere holy. Would you stand with me and as we close in worship if you need to go and get grab your kids please do but if you want to stick around a little bit and just come and worship the lord if you need prayer if this morning you're realizing that you have not you've not put god first that maybe you're trying to suffer alone maybe you're trying to do this on your own i'm here to tell you you don't have to anymore one you have the holy spirit but two that holy spirit has given you a church family and if you don't have a church family, become a part of ours. We'd love to have you. Let's come and worship the Lord and just spend some time celebrating because we're